Little secret about me. When I was in middle school, I remember watching TV and some commercials were very entertaining in between the shows that I would watch. I remember thinking I could make a better commercial than that. And I even went to college for advertising and I double majored in that in public relations and um, didn't ever really look away from that. Who knew that I would be actually making commercials? Like I thought that I'd make the creative boards, but nope, that's not the case. Like now I'm doing the entire thing. And even now, like I don't feel like the commercials that uh, I quote unquote make, I guess, are really commercials. Like I feel like they're advocating for a cause. And that's one of the reasons that I'm really happy to talk about and support Waxo, the sex positive LGBTQ friendly online magazine because of the We Need a Button campaign. That is a campaign that's advocating for queer friendly, empathetic health care, health care. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you want to talk about a bad spot. Um but yeah, it doesn't feel like a commercial. I feel like I'm just supporting a cause I believe in that's important. And I think that it's really important for you to align yourselves with relevant things that are informative and creating some sort of positive change in the world. And that's what I feel like it does with getting the stories out of um, care providers, healthcare providers, not giving people the quality of treatment that they should be getting because we're all humans and it's unfortunate that people are being discriminated against based on gender sexual orientation and just you know sexual preferences and sexual lifestyle it's not fair and advocating for we need a button to let people know that doctors are going to be queer friendly in that regard it really helps for people to be able to open up and be comfortable with their care providers so that they can get the best treatment. So I'm all in support of Waxo. You can go there and also check out more in-depth detail about the podcast episode. So like you can listen to the podcast and often sometimes things come up afterward that weren't covered in much detail. Like for this episode, in, uh, as an example, we discuss a wide range of topics from um, qualifications in the sex educator space to um, finances and dating and relationships. We get, of course, the title is dating advice, but we talk about sex after a divorce, dating after a divorce. We talk about outsourcing needs and relationships. And one big thing is that people aren't boring, they're hiding. And I thought that that was really good. So that's something else that I'll be writing about and you can check that out in more detail on Waxo. But as of right now, like outsourcing needs in multiple relationships is one of the more recent articles that I've written as a result of this podcast episode. So you can go to Waxo.com and check that out. And um, just going into this episode, I encourage you to check it out, listen with an open mind and be receptive to the advice that we're getting from a marriage therapist who happens to be divorced. Um, uh, as far as updates with the podcast and the nonprofit, um, I'm getting more clear on what it is I'm doing. I noticed that it's really um, challenging for people to really support what they aren't really sure about, I guess. Like, yeah, I do this podcast and I interview people and I talk to people behind the scenes and I 
never really felt compelled to tell people, well, this is exactly what happens behind the scenes, but there is a lot. There's a lot that goes into it. And I've been encouraged by the upcoming board of directors, which I'm so pumped to announce uh, at the beginning of the year and be able to have that up on the website as well. Um, but I have support for some powerhouses. I've got one of my mentors, someone that I really look up to in this space, and a couple of people who are really doing some great things for the herpes, for the people who are living with herpes. I was about to say the herpes community. I guess that's accurate as well. So, um, yeah, I look forward to being able to put that together in a more tangible way so that people can understand how exactly they're supporting. So all the donations up to this point have more so gone to this trip that's coming up at STD Engage. By this time, um, the trip will have happened. By the time um, that this podcast episode is released, um, it'll be, oh no, actually, I'll be on the trip. So I'll have more updates for everyone soon. If you follow me on social media, I'm on uh, Instagram, that's where I'm most active at H on my chest. And it's really more of a personal Instagram. And I just share the podcast episodes and usually tag the guests because that's where I find more of the guests there and Reddit pretty much. So um, if you're someone who wants to be a guest, don't hesitate to reach out. And I'll be sure to send you all updates on um, what's going on with the nonprofit and what happened after STD Engage, which I'm really excited about because that's an opportunity for me to really get some sense of direction in terms of how we can get the resources that we uplift and promote in front of people when they need it the most. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to this intro. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please like, rate, review, and share this podcast because that's one more way that we're able to continue to release this on a weekly basis and get additional support and get the information out to the people who need it most. Enjoy this episode with the About Sex podcast host, Dr. Angela Skirt 2. That sounds good. I guess I should have just started. I mean, I don't know. So if anyone who's new here, please go and check out episode zero of the podcast. That's where you'll get the intro. Now I'm just kind of opening with the conversation because I find myself in these situations, and I'm sure you can relate to this, where... You'll be talking to your guests before the podcast starts and all these things come up. And before you know it, you're looking up and you could have just recorded an entire episode. Now you got to get started. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so today I'm here with Angela. Can you please say your last name for me? Skirt two. It's like two skirts backwards. Oh, <laughs> skirt two. I like it. And what are your credentials? So I'm a licensed marriage therapist in the state of Missouri and an ASEC certified sex therapist, which is a national certification. ASEC certified. Yeah. Okay. So it's the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. And it, I mean, the way I would describe it is like getting a second master's actually, because you have, a, they're very strict about even letting people in because we really want it to be biological and science-based as opposed to feelings and values based. There are even groups out there that are certification things that are a little more pseudoscience would be a good way of putting it. You know, like there's there's just differences, right? And so our group really cares about the science and the research behind sexuality. And so they put you through a rigorous training of education in all different areas of sexuality. And then you still have to get supervision under another sex therapist to make sure that you're actually 
putting the stuff into practice in a good way and you're not just talking out your ass essentially. <laughs> All right, so are there other options for certifications? Because when I hear certification, I think, oh, maybe you just need X number of hours of classes and mm -hmm. a little bit of field work under supervision. Everybody after they get their license as whatever they are, so there's marriage and family therapy, licensed counselors, licensed social workers, has a certain number of CEUs they have to do every year just to keep their license. But the certifications on top, so like if you ever go see a therapist and they have 50 letters behind their name, it's actually that they've tried to get different certifications in areas because they're like, no, I really want to specialize here. I don't just want to be a jack of all trades, but I really want to know my shit and do it as well as I can. And I won't say that ASECT is the only one you can do it with because there's certifications for play therapy. There's certifications for, you know, working with people who are borderline or potentially suicidal. There's specific certifications for that. And there's certifications essentially for all of the very specific issues that we deal with. And all of them, you know, I don't want to like say only ASECT is the science one because a lot of them are very scientifically based. Okay. <laughs> I've seen people practice sex education or begin to give guidance without any kind of a certification. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of harm that potentially does? Well, when people are doing it in that sort of advice giving way, as long as they're making it clear that they're not certified or not a therapist, then just like if you go to a friend and who says, look, I'm not a professional, but as your friend, this is what I think. I mean, your friend isn't going to give you harm necessarily. You still have a right to choose what you're going to choose, right? But it's when people are acting kind of like this professional, but without that training, and they're kind of like saying it with a sense of authority, that's where we get into some problems because it's like, no, this is really what you need to do. But like some of that stuff can be pretty harmful. And if it hasn't been researched, if it hasn't been tested in some way, it's just dangerous to pose as an expert when you're not. I still want to give people freedom to give opinions because opinions still matter. You may not be an expert in the field, but you may be an expert at sucking at relationships and knowing how to tell people how to do that, <laughs> like how not to do it. We're not invalidating anyone's experiences here. It's yeah. just we want to make sure that people are aware that this is coming from experience and not expertise. I value experience because even as a therapist, it's funny, but clients... Sometimes they want to hear me as an expert, but other times they want to hear me as a human. And so I actually will do that in session where I'll, like, I'll be like, do you want to hear the Angela that's a professional or like real Angela right now? And it's funny, but a lot of times they want to hear real Angela, the part of me that's a little judgy, that's not supposed to come across that way. They love that Angela because sometimes they just want you to talk to them straight. And so I think everybody has something valid to offer. I just think it's important for people not to misrepresent themselves. I like the way you put that. I do find myself in this space even where people come to me and it's way over my head. I primarily yeah. interview people who are dealing with the herpes diagnosis, but I'll talk to people who talk about having contemplated suicide, having attempted suicide, mm -hmm. and they want... It seems like a friend more than anything, and I can provide that up to a certain point to where it's like, all right, yeah, I can listen to you. Oh, mm -hmm. I can ask you questions. However, I'm unable to give you the next steps and what to do mm -hmm. or uh, practical steps that you need to implement on your own. So for someone who may be a friend who, let's say, they're engaging with someone who might need to see a therapist. Is mm -hmm. there a way that we can make that suggestion without seeming like we're being dismissive? Because that's how I feel oftentimes. Well, I mean, I like that you said, I feel like this is above my head. I can talk to you as a friend about some of my experiences. But one thing I always say 
that's a helpful approach is throw yourself under the bus, actually, where you basically say, you know, I've been to therapy and it really helped me out. And I can give you advice in terms of what I've gone through, but I can't tell you what steps to take, like you just said. So I would then move into something along the lines of if you are ever open to seeing a therapist, I think they could help you with that. But like, I've done it too, and I've learned a lot in therapy, and as a result, I always do this half in, half out too, because I want people to not feel like I'm saying, well, you need a therapist. So it's more suggestive. <laughs> it's suggestive, and it's it's giving you a little bit of like, I've done this too, and it's not that big of a deal, but then it's like, anytime you give advice, you can't give advice and take it personally if people don't take it, because ultimately... It's their life and their choice. That's the only thing I will say. If people are like, well, I told you to do this and you didn't. And it's like, that's, it's like really rude. Like give advice that really is free. That doesn't come with a consequence. I understand. I understand. <laughs> All right. Now you have a podcast. I do. Mine is a, uh, about sex podcast, www.aboutsexpodcast. What could that possibly be about? Oh, it's about turquoise and colors. No, it's about sex. But actually, it's more than sex. It's about relationships and sex. I, I talk about all kinds of things on there. I've talked about finance before. I've talked about different kinds of relationships. I've even had people who are authors of their stories come on and talk to me about their stories. So really, it's a big, broad relationships and sex topic and anything that impacts people in those ways. And part of the reasons it's kind of broad is that as a sex therapist, I find that people talk to me about everything. It's such a taboo topic that once people are comfortable sharing that with me, it's like they'll talk to me about their business plans. They'll talk to me about parenting. They'll talk to me about, I hate life, you know, like whatever. <laughs> I'm glad that you mentioned that because I do find myself in a position where people really open up based on some sort of a common ground, which yeah. tends to be... Uh, some sort of a trauma or something that's taboo or something that's really just challenging to talk about. Well, I can imagine on your podcast about being positive. I mean, it's taboo. There's a lot of shame around it. Same for me with sex. I mean, there's a lot of shame around sex, a lot of fear, a lot of people kind of being scared to be vulnerable. And, and the way I kind of see it is sex is one of the most vulnerable topics. So if I can build trust with somebody in the in the realm of sexuality, then I essentially build trust and just transfers into the other groups. And so I, I do end up not only doing therapy across the spectrum, but doing my podcast across the spectrum, because really what I'm interested in is stories. And I love it. I love talking to people like this. And you, it's really casual. There's no therapy involved. There's just hearing each other. We don't have that. While we're so connected to everyone and we can suddenly transfer our thoughts to that person's hearing or their sight if we're messaging or if we're talking to one another there's nothing like just human presence mm -hmm. to be able to facilitate that exchange in the presence of one another that's becoming a lost art and podcasting may be even one of the closest things to that because you're able to have a verbal exchange with someone whether it's in person or if it's over video or however you communicate it but you're talking back and forth and there's no time to construct the perfect message or response or word the perfect way that you're trying to sort through something and I think that we kind of lose context in dialogue whenever we're using I kind of have a thought on this I think we're struggling with being vulnerable with each other like all of us here's my weird way of looking at this the other day I was with a client and I said to her I think people are boring but then I stopped myself because I was like wait 
Actually, it depends on the context which I'm talking to them. In the office, people are the most interesting people I've ever talked to. I hear people's deepest, darkest secrets, their vulnerabilities, their stories. So I'm actually never bored in the office. But what I meant is out there in the world, when you meet people, that's when they're boring. And it's not that they're boring, it's that they're hiding. They're not showing who they are. We all kind of keep up these images and people don't break down those barriers. And it takes a long time to really feel like you connect with someone as a result. And so I'll go into these situations, networking, or even just meeting a new, new group of friends and feel like, God, these people are boring. But it's not that. It's that they're kind of scared to be vulnerable. It's a matter of just getting people to a place where they feel safe. And yeah. I find that the best way to do that is to offer up some vulnerability for yourself. And people Absolutely. tend to bite on that or they'll you know, just kind of distance themselves from it if it's just too uncomfortable for them. Well, to your point, I was just in a training on Friday and it was all about vulnerability. Because I don't like it, actually, but I'm working on it. <laughs> so... Um, they challenged us to be vulnerable and to share something we were working on. And so I was like, well, you're trying to be courageous, Angela. Go for it. So I I shared a vulnerability that I have. I'll share it on the podcast, too, that I'm a divorced marriage therapist. And that's a really hard space to be in because as a marriage therapist, a lot of people look up to you as somebody who's supposed to be an expert in marriage and uh, even a question you might get on the phone is, uh, are you married? Have you been married? How long have you been married? And so it it really hit me hard realizing that I'm still struggling with my identity there. It's like, who am I? And who am I? How, how dare I be a divorce <laughs> marriage therapist? Which is not very self-compassionate, I'm aware. But it was interesting because when I opened that up, it was like everybody at the table was then ready to share and get vulnerable too. And a woman across the way was like, I'm struggling through a divorce too. And at the end of this training, I felt really close to that table of women. And it would have never happened <laughs> had I not shared this really hard truth for me. <laughs> what is it? Is it? Is it empathy? Is it that you were in front of a crowd and other people kind of felt that shame being put out there and they wanted to just help you alleviate it? Or was it something else? Like, I, I, I want to kind of figure this out because for me, telling one person, I mentioned this to you earlier mm -hmm. when I was at the St. Louis podcast meetup, when I told people, I interview people with herpes. And they were like, how'd you get into that? And then I had to say, well, I have herpes. And like, here, having to say that to one person versus telling the world in yeah. a podcast, two completely different things. It was so easy for me to tell a group of people, and it was the same thing for you. You told a group of people versus one person. So is there this sort of, uh, like, group dynamic that gives us strength to disclose that kind of information? It was pretty scary for me, and it wasn't a big group. It was a table, so there was about five of us. I mean, I do think that sometimes you can feel lost in the crowd. Like, it is, I'm a speaker as well, so it's easier sometimes for me to be vulnerable on stage because I don't know those people, and I also, I can see their faces, but if I never see them again, then I'll be fine. You know, like, I'll go my merry way, right? <laughs> but um, I will, I think it's hard to do it on the one-on-one, -on -one, you know, to your point. I'm in a new relationship right now, and, and I, I I even struggle with the, uh, like, how do I, I don't like this. Like, last night, I was 
I was in the bathroom and I was looking at the mirror and you know how like we're kind of starting to combine lives and my stuff was in a drawer, but I wanted it in the mirror. <laughs> and I, I didn't, I was like, but what, why should I ask that? Is that weird? What, what if he like is mad at me for asking? And there's all this weird, you know, this is stuff that you do in your head. Whereas, but I think you do that same internal monologue stuff when you're in the group too. I just think it's just so much more intimate doing it one, one to one than it maybe is in that bigger group. But to, for me, it was scary either way. <laughs> uh. And I see people who offer up their status publicly so easily, but they're devastated about disclosing to a potential sexual partner. Yeah. And so, I mean, I I guess there's a greater risk of rejection because the stakes are higher. And just like you said, you know, you may never see that group of people again, but even with, let's use Facebook, for example, like Mm -hmm. my family is on Facebook, friends from high school are on Facebook. So I don't know if over time, like do their opinions just kind of no longer matter or do you feel like I, I don't know I, I I can't figure it out if there's like a greater strength there with your support system in coming out or if there's more of a discovery of strength through vulnerability when you're on your own and you don't know anybody in the room that's a really tough question oh, and I don't know if I know the answer <laughs> it's not what I ask I think that that's just something that's just something to just chew on I mean it's a rhetorical type thing because I mean I don't know how to answer it like I just I know that this is what I see and this is what I've experienced personally is just that it's so much easier to tell a group of people something than it is one person I've got a thought on this. So I was thinking about infidelity. I have a book on infidelity. Um, oh, what's the book called? It's called Helping Couples Overcome Infidelity. And I have two books, actually. I also have a premarital counseling book, too. Um, what's that book called? A premarital Counseling, A Guide for Clinicians. But um, when I talk to people, it's so infidelity is a perfect example of how difficult it can be to be vulnerable with your partner. The common story is that couples kind of drift apart and they think they know each other, but after this infidelity occurs, they realize they have lost each other. They've lost connection. Even in some happy couples, they realize they've been living in this type of status quo where they haven't felt connected or they haven't had real conversations in a very long time, vulnerable conversations. And so I wonder if we get to a point where we just rely on the fact that they're around. And so, you know, a client just the other day said this, but use your support system. Don't just know they're there. And I loved that. I loved that quote because I was like, I think, you know, you can be married for a really long time. You can even be in a friendship for a long time and have this support system, but not really go there with that person on a regular basis. So then what happens is somebody cheats on the other person and, uh, well, that's the biggest betrayal, right? It's actually, they consider it second only to abuse in a relationship. Um, but so somebody gets cheated on and then the relationship essentially shatters to the ground and there's no way to move forward without somehow putting those pieces together or starting new, like you can't go back to the old relationship after that. The couples that heal though are the ones who get very vulnerable, very raw, and very honest with each other on both sides, not just one to the other, but like each of them starts sharing things like, you know what, I miss that we used to go on dates or I always wanted to try this thing sexually and I I just didn't feel like 
you you would accept me or I was too scared to put it out there or like for the person who was cheated on they might say well I wanted to do those things too how come you didn't ask me why did you do it with this other person that's so common and I just think you know and what's interesting to your point earlier is that because people feel a little safer with strangers the affair starts with a with a vulnerability to a stranger, to somebody who's not close, because you're too scared of the person that you're with or what they're going to think or if they're going to judge you or shame, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so it's just interesting. So, yeah, I do. I think we've cultivated more security to be vulnerable with strangers than with the people we love the most. Sounds like a Facebook status. <laughs> <laughs> Something to bring up for discussion. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned earlier that one of the topics that comes up on your podcast, and mind you, it's the About Sex podcast, is finances. I thought that that was interesting. How is it that finances comes up on the podcast? Well, because couples are fighting about all kinds of things. They have the top three top three fights, sex, finances, and the parenting chore situation. Oh, food's not in there? Uh, food? <laughs> you know? I guess I would put that into the okay. vision of labor sort of situation because that's what that, that third category really is. It's like, I'm doing everything and you're not doing enough. I'm doing all the cooking. But about actually what they're going to eat, I don't know if I get many fights about that as long as there's food on the table. i got to bring my girlfriend <laughs> in here. She's always getting hangry. Or she's oh, <laughs> that is a thing. People do get hangry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like everybody fights about a little bit of everything. So I try to cover all of the dynamics and finances is one. It's another one of those topics that's really difficult for couples because we bring in different value systems around finances. And as a result, like if one person was raised in this way and another person was raised completely different, then there's a fear and difficulty talking through that. And you know, it's funny with guys and girls, you end up spinning around the same. It's just done differently. Guys do bigger increments at shorter amounts of time. Like you'll buy a big I don't know, radio or stuff. Radio is such an old... Nobody buys a radio anymore. But you know what I mean? You'll buy a big iPhone or something or gosh, more like electronic. But then females will make more small purchases over time. And But when you look at it at the end of the year, we, usually it's pretty similar. So can we do this thing where like instead of men, woman, boy, girl, I like to try and keep it masculine, oh, sure. feminine, just... To make sure that everyone feels heard on here. Sure, sure. So whenever we talk about it, like I know what you mean, and I'm sure most of the people know what. Well, but you we want to be like. gender fluid too, because yeah. not everybody fits into specific categories, and we do want to be more inclusive. Yeah. So if anyone wants to complain about the masculine feminine thing, I'll take that. Oh. <laughs> I'll, I'll eat that. But um, does there tend to be sort of an overlap between finances and sex itself in relationships, like? Um, the financial security may offer a form of sexual security or something like that. It's interesting, but I, I do think we pay for sex, whether we, uh, whether you want to agree with me or not. When people fall into traditional roles, and quite a few people still look at traditional marriage. So when I mean traditional roles, I mean like the masculine partner is supposed to work and take care of the bills, that's kind of their role. And then the more feminine rolled person is supposed to stay home, take care of the kids, um, take care of the household stuff. Now, we have a new world. Not everybody is living in that situation. But what I have found is 
when people are divided very traditionally like that, if sex is gone, then there is a really heavy resentment from the masculine party <laughs> in terms of this is your job. It's your job to take care of the sex in this relationship. And I'm taking care of my role doing the finances and providing. So you're not doing this. And I'm not saying everybody because you can never globalize. But I have seen that particular trend frequently enough that I can say it's a type of stereotype. <laughs> when you say the resentment is building up from the masculine perspective, is there almost like an expectation that's yeah. just not being communicated? Yeah, well, there's an expectation, and sometimes it really is being communicated. It's just angrily being communicated because there's resentment. It's like, well, this is your one job. Yeah, and I don't, like I said, I don't think every parent falls into this. Everybody has different issues that they're working through, but money and sex do collide in different ways. Like, even to go outside of the traditional role, for example, going into people who are at least attempting to do the egalitarian thing. Well... With women working, or feminines working, whatever you prefer, now that it's a two-income home, some of those roles still are a woman's job. They're trying to have it all, but they can't, and they're exhausted. And so what ends up falling off the table is sex, because if you work a full-time job, and you're still doing most of the child-rearing, and you're still doing most of the cleaning, you can't fulfill every role because it's exhausting. And, and what I often see is the masculine person in this situation is helping. It's not that he's not, but it's still not to the degree that the feminine role is doing it. It just isn't, you know, and, and where you'll see it is in what about the school activities? Who's paying attention to when the kids need to wear this shirt or when they need to bring this lunch or who's paying attention to the doctor visits? Like, is it mostly the feminine who's taking them to the doctor's visits? Is, and even driving to and from school, you know, like it's, it's in these smaller things, a lot of little small things that sometimes just the masculine partner doesn't even notice, you yeah. know, and it's not, because I, I never want to blame anyone. I honestly think people intentionally want goodness for each other to help each other out. I truly think it's a, I just don't notice those things exist. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, then the feminine partner really, she's exhausted and, and I'll hear it again and again. And so one of the first things I might look for when a couple is coming in and they're struggling with sex is, well, what's the balance of chores and finance and power in the relationship? And nine times out of 10, there's a problem there too. Okay. So we're talking about finances in traditional households, families, relationships. What about more alternative style relationships? Does that play a role in anything? So we're talking about polyamory, um, whatever range on the spectrum of non-monogamy may fall under. Mm -hmm. Well, that, I mean, everybody's a little bit different there. I think in my ideal world for the non-monogamous people that everybody's trying to do it a little bit, take a little piece here, take a little piece there and help out. I know it, it's probably different for every household and it depends on how they're defined. The funny thing is um, in the swinger world, they still can be pretty traditional. Uh, that doesn't mean they can't be somewhat alternative in their thinking, but I have found there are still representations of the traditional even in the non-monogamy world, a lot of times in the swinger world. Um, but then with polyamorous folks, not all of the time are they living together. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're in separate households. Sometimes they're in a big communal group. It just depends. So it would, I don't think it's, I'm sure there's some differences, but I think it would be hard to find all of them without a good study. 
drunk. You mentioned play therapy earlier. Yeah. What is that? I am not an expert in play therapy. So that was one long ago I was thinking, you know, that's an area where even me as a therapist, I would say, I need to refer this out to some other therapist. But essentially play therapy is incorporating some type of play. It's usually done with children. However, I've seen some really cool adventurous therapists using play therapy with adults now too, because play is a part of our happiness so and when you well-being. Said, when you said play therapy, I thought you meant like with adults and then you said children. I was like, whoa, what? So we're talking about... I'm talking about and, playing with toys, okay. sandboxes. Uh, sometimes they'll have them do drawing. Sometimes it, it could be playing different games. But it really is playing as a form of therapy. Well, even like a coloring book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so like children do most of their learning and growing through play. And so it makes sense to use play therapy for children for that reason. You might... I've, I've only taken classes, so again, I'm not an expert on this, but... You might play dolls with this kid, but as you're playing dolls, they might be enacting things that have happened in their life through the dolls. And so you ask very open-ended questions, learn a little bit, explore. It becomes a very safe space for children to disclose things about trauma, about things that are going on in their home life that they're struggling with, fears, things of that nature. And not all of it is like that. So like, again, I'm not an expert in this. So there's multiple ways this is done. Some people are more directive in play therapy. Some are less directive where they really just like to let the child lead the situation. But because children learn through play, it's a very valuable way for children to kind of be involved in therapy. But to your point earlier, they are using play therapy with some adults now too, because what we found is happiness is linked to play, playing, having fun, enjoying yourself, laughing. And I've been in a couple just see basic classes where they'll make us as adults play with something and see the value of, oh yeah, that actually is kind of nice and I feel good after this. Maybe I should do play there. Yeah. Where do you feel the most confident in your practice? My specialties are definitely in sexuality, but infidelity is one that's a unique one. Oddly, though, it's not that unique for marriage therapy because it's the most common reason couples come into marriage therapy. Somebody cheats and then they need to work through that. I didn't expect that to be a specialty, though, when I came in. I, I actually just love working with couples in conflict and helping them see eye to eye. I would say I'm a compromise therapist, right? I'm teaching people on opposite ends of the couch to come somewhere in the middle. But the most common one really is infidelity. It's this huge thing that impacts them and they have to address it. Because America's the kind of country that just doesn't come in until it's really broken. <laughs> There's not a lot of preventive work that happens here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> not that I'm saying there are people who do. But my first book on premarital counseling, I really love prevention. I want people to prevent certain conflicts, talk through things. So they're on the same page, learn how to talk through that. It's just funny because our culture really isn't that preventive. It's more common for me to get people at like the hugest crisis in their life. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there's always a buildup, but what are some things that we can do in order to enact some preventative measures? I think everybody needs to talk about finances a lot before moving in with each other and while living with each other. Um, I'm surprised at how many couples don't sit down with their bills together before moving in and really look at, okay, here's the debt I'm bringing in. Here's the debt I'm bringing in. Here are the bills I have to pay. Here are some of my savings. How much do we want to put towards this amount versus this amount? Like how much do we need to keep this household running? So 
like having a real honest conversation and regular conversations about how you're managing finances is one. Um, another one for sex is talking very openly and candidly about your values, what you're interested in, what you like, what you don't like. And again, all of these conversations aren't a one-time thing. These are things that have to be done regularly over time because guess what? We change. What you like today sexually in 10 years could be completely different and our bodies change too. So what you're capable of doing 10 years ago is different than what you're capable of doing now. Can't hold your leg up like this anymore. It, just <laughs> it is harder to stick those legs over your head. It just is. <laughs> oh, we talked about people changing. How do we look at what kind of a boundary do you set around that or expectation around the idea that we're talking from a couple's perspective. We're looking at two people who may have been married at 25. Who you are at 25 isn't going to be who you are at 35. Yeah. So what in what ways do we begin to talk around change? Is there a way to navigate the understanding of change? That's an interesting question. And I think that if people are committed to the regular conversation, the navigation is just bringing it up that I have changed. I feel like I'm in a different spot. I don't know what this means for me right now, but I will say I've had really interesting topic changes like that be a huge barrier for couples. So here's a couple. When somebody starts to admit or open up about the fact that they're bisexual, for example, that can sometimes happen in the middle of a relationship. <laughs> um, so that one's a really big one. Another one that's come up enough in my uh, sessions is when a relationship started out monogamous and people are suddenly saying, you know, I've been exploring what this non-monogamy thing is and I, I feel like I, I fit this category and I'd like to try this. And I think they're huge because they're a change in the boundaries of the relationship and there's a lot of fear around those things. What do those mean? Like for a bisexual person who's finally coming out, does that mean you want to have sex with somebody else or are you a monogamous bisexual or are you actually wanting like a girlfriend and a boyfriend or a feminine and a or you know and and so I'm not going to say it's easy because it's not. It's actually hard to change the nature of the relationship or the boundaries, but as long as there's a commitment to no matter what changes come up, we're going to talk through this and try and find a way. And I think it's possible, but with a caveat, that sometimes people have to be open to the idea of changing how a relationship is defined if it means that it's no longer serving them. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, say one person decides they really are monogamous or non-monogamous and the other person really is monogamous. There is just no part of them that wants to continue that way. Well, in some cases, people might divorce over something like that. And I wish that our society wasn't so mean about divorce because there's just this overarching thought that that's a failure to people. But I don't see it as a failure if you're doing what's best for the both of you and ultimately living the healthiest, most authentic self of you. Because it's not healthy to lie and to, to be living a lie in a relationship. I had a guest on recently. I can't wait to share this podcast. But what she said was she forced her presence into a space. And that's the title of the podcast. Like I, I love what she said. But she talked about living for so many years not being able to fully be herself. Mm -hmm. And in a time where she should have had more confidence 
and herself, her abilities, and what she was capable of, it wasn't until after she was able to really express herself, her sexuality, that she began to feel most confident, most herself. And there's a power in that. There's a power in knowing who you are and being able to express it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's hard because we go through a lot of transitions in life and, you know, you get to defining yourself in one way. And I mean, I'll use my own divorce as an example. So I really define myself as a, that successfully, I'm doing this in quotes, successfully married marriage therapist. And a lot of my identity centered around that. And then when we divorced, which was the right decision, it's weird, but it was very mutual and even cordial at times. Like, yeah, we're better as friends. This is a good thing. But even with all of that said, it changed everything about who I was and I had to kind of find Angela again and I'm still finding her today. But to your point earlier, I think that as you get closer and closer to who your authentic self is, you get more confidence because it's like you know you and you feel strength in that. Yeah, no, (laughs) I agree. Okay, (laughs) it's common for you to find couples who one may decide that they want to try this polyamory thing, right? Now, is that something that's emerging due to information being so readily available now? Like, we're now exposed to so much information that it's like when you get a cut on your hand and you Google cut on my hand and you read through things and before you know it, you think you've got cancer. So is it kind of like that where it's like, man, I really can't stop looking at other women. Oh, I'm polyamorous. Like, is that, <laughs> I, and I, use, I don't know if that's a terrible analogy or no, not. No, it's just funny. Like, is that a possible thing? So are we just now at a space where we can find anything to validate what our experiences are and we're able to find a name for it and communities for it and people who can validate that for us. So I'm, I'm going to blow your mind a little bit, but um, multiple relationships is more the norm than monogamous relationships across history. And here's how I'm going to explain it. You're blowing my mind. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So marriage for love is a recent invention. Before that, marriage wasn't for love at all. It was a property exchange. Marriage was about um, raising your status. It was about connecting families. But it wasn't about love until the 19th century. I actually write about the history of this in my premarital book. And so as a result, when you did get married, people saw love as kind of dumb, like a fleeting thing. And so it was pretty common for people to have mistresses, to see prostitutes, to have people. But this was very hidden. It was an understood thing. No, you didn't bring your mistress into like work or into any social functions unless you were royal. Actually, royalty could sometimes like uh, have their mistress might be one of the ladies in waiting, for example. (laughs) That's taking care of their queen. But they didn't get to wear the crown, you know, and the queen understood this isn't about love. This is about my status. I'm powerful and she might have her own. She might have her own mist. I guess is it called the mister? I don't know. (laughs) But so that was pretty common. Even going further back in history, plural marriage was pretty common. You can find that biblically in in the Quran as well, you know, because I want to look both ways. I mean, there's multiple religions, but I just don't want to be too Christian normative, right? Um, but so plural marriages were pretty common too. It's this monogamous thing is more of a recent invention because now we want everything out of marriage. We want to 
have a good partner and we both get to work and, and we have great sex too. Oh, we're awesome partners. We're best friends too. You know, like we actually have added a lot of expectations to marriage. And as a result, it's made people feel, I think it makes it easier for people to feel like they're screwing it up because there's so many expectations on it. <laughs> but so to your point, yes, people are hearing the term polyamory more and being able to look that up on the web because it's out there, but it's always been around. Yeah. It just wasn't called that. So what it looks like to me is just that you have community relationships. I don't even know if that's the right word. If that is, let's cut that out. Yeah. I've been in relationships in the past where it's been myself and one woman. And that one woman would be threatened by any sort of an external relationship, which going back to what you said, we're talking about exchanging, sharing resources. I can still share and exchange resources with having female friends who just mm -hmm. happen to appear attractive and intimidating or threatening to the other person because they have something that this person doesn't have or they may look a certain way or there may be some sort of chemistry there. But we know it's the expectation that we're not going to explore anything outside of our relationship. So why is it that me having a community is a threat and that also tends to make a person isolate themselves exclusively to their partner cutting off their families and friends and now i don't have access to those resources anymore so forgot where i was going with this but <laughs> i'm just listening I'm like wow that uh, sounds horrible <laughs> so no no just like and i use this as an example but of um now limiting ex uh resources I think it's like a survival mindset type thing of where what I have with you, I don't want to lose versus the potential loss of what we have at the expense of, you know, having more something greater because of a community. So our one one relationship being all things to one another, we're limited to what we have and what we've built together and what we extend together versus there being the likelihood of being able to establish like a business relationship with someone else who just might be threatening to the relationship from one partner's perspective. Does that make sense? It does. And I would just challenge people to examine what they see as a threat. I think it's very isolating doing things like that. And I do believe that people can be friends, platonic friends. I believe people can be lovers too. Don't get me wrong. There are people with non-monogamous relationships but going back to my thoughts around how many expectations we're putting on marriage or relationships or long-term, I don't think you can get all of your needs met by one person because there's just too many of them. I mean, mm. think of that, you know? Like, I've had feminine people in here. <laughs> it's so weird. This is going to catch on. This is gonna it's going to catch on. on. The fems. <laughs> I've had fems in here who their male partner is just not great at communicating you know and a lot of guys have actually struggled with that growing up not being able to being uncomfortable socializing or just going deep and so for those women how they found a way to do well in this relationship is cultivating a lot of other friendships with people so they can still talk to people and get that need met but then get other needs met from their partner and so I just and I'm not that I don't, I want people to have deep, intimate connections, don't get me wrong, but I don't think that's a bad way of handling something if your ultimate goal is to stay with that partner for the rest of your life and to deal with the fact that maybe they have some deficits, you know, and everybody does, like, 
we all have strengths and weaknesses. Some of us are really good at talking. Some of us are great financial providers. Some of us are great in bed, you know? I don't think there's anyone who has everything. And so if it's literally, I have to be your all and I have to be your all, what do you do with those deficits or weaknesses? You can't get anything from anyone else. And all I see that's happening in the non-monogamy world is they're even saying in the romantic capacity, you can't get all your needs met by one person because when you're with one person, you get into sexual ruts. Even looking at porn, the porn all looks the same to me too, to be honest. I don't think I learned that much from porn. And I'm a sex therapist, so I know a lot. <laughs> but I think even there, like for the swingers, they're learning different things from each other. They're learning, oh, I had no idea you could get a woman to come that way. That's exciting, you know? And, and they're just essentially outsourcing different needs and wants. Outsourcing is a good word. That's a really good word because... I can't talk to my partner about drapes or uh, be excited <laughs> that she got a new fingernail polish or You can outfit. say that's pretty. That's pretty cool. Yeah, but we can't exchange on the level that she may want to. Like, exactly. oh, yeah, did you see this? Look at it. I got it for this much money. I went to this place. Like, mm-hmm. the questions, I'll hear my partner talk to her friends, and I'm just like, this is a real conversation. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> the point. But I can't point. carry it. Yeah. I appreciate that, because that's like... I- you're listening to her on the phone or talking to and you're like, that is a completely different conversation that I can't engage in. But you know what? It's really nice to hear her engage in that way with another person and to not feel threatened by that. That's the part that I think is important is I want her to be able to engage over nails at a deep level (laughs) with another person, not Uh me, because it's just not my expertise. (laughs) And then when we come together for the thing that we enjoy with one another, like there's almost this alleviated pressure of like, oh, I needed to get that out of my system. And then you come to me and it's like, hey, I just want to sit here and be with you and watch you play video games. I'm being very specific now. Sure, it's okay. (laughs) But like that's how, that's, that's, I think that that's a thing that happens when we're able to outsource our needs. So if I'm able Mm -hmm. to, like I enjoy going to Comic-Con cosplay conventions. There are some people that get so excited about it. Like it's, yeah, like those are the people (laughs) that I want to go with. But like me telling my partner, hey babe, I want to go to this Comic-Con convention and she'd just be like, oh, all right, I'll come with you. You You know she's not going to (laughs) engage in the same way. I mean, she'll be there to support you. Like, oh, I'm so glad you're, but there's a difference when somebody is like, oh my God, we're seeing this person and this is happening. I can't believe I got a picture with that guy. Oh my God. Like there's just a different energy. Mm-hmm. And then like, it's one thing for someone to want to be involved and like want to learn. But then there's another to just be able to go into that space with someone who has the experience or is like, oh my God, did you see so-and-so over there? You're like, oh, where, where? Being able to know names. Like it's just a completely different experience to be able to do it with someone else. So I want to tell you what this is that we're talking about. It's called compersion. And compersion is essentially getting joy from your partner's joy. It's a key term that's used a lot in consensual non-monogamy for what partners are actually getting out of a partner having sex with another person. So I'm not a video gamer, but I have a compersion for getting somebody on a tangent and seeing them in that excited space and finding ways to make it pop a little bit. Like my brother, for example, loves Dungeons and Dragons. And one of my favorite things to do is to get him on a Dungeons and Dragons tirade where he's like, da da this. And I'm like, wait, Jason, what about this? And what about this? And what about that? And he'll be like, and he does that, ah, pop, 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 pop. But so compersion 
is the excitement that you can feel. You don't have to understand the topic or what's going on, but the excitement you feel seeing your partner being as ha- their happiest self. And you can be a part of it, or you can be a distant observer, watching them at the Comic-Con getting all excited, or you can be like at home and they tell you about it when they come home and you feel that energy. And the same thing essentially is being done with non-monogamy clients is that they're seeing the excitement their partner feels getting to know somebody new, flirting again, trying to find their, I guess, sex legs essentially. <laughs> I was thinking sea legs, but I'm like, I don't feel like that's relevant. Right? Sex legs works way better. Sex legs. Well, you know what sex legs are, right? When you, you After you've had sex and you're kind of wobbly and it just feels awkward. So I really felt like that was the right term for that phrase. But <laughs> I think if couples can work towards a compersion. Now, I'm not saying everybody needs to be non-monogamous because ultimately I want people to be true to who they are. Well, I feel like compersion doesn't apply just to sex. We're talking no, about... No, it support. can be Comic-Con, right? But I do think couples, for that threatening piece, need to learn to develop a compersion for, no, like, I'm not going to be able to meet every one of those needs. And, and I'm not going to get as excited about Comic-Con. I don't even know who that character is. But it's okay for me to allow my partner a space for that freedom and excitement. And just to put in a positive for how this helps with sex, essentially giving each other freedom and a little bit of distance creates kind of an anticipatory pull between the two of you. Because essentially, you each have something you can bring back, new and different. And if you really are just locked like this all the time, there's no excitement or adventure coming back into the relationship. Even if it's a Comic-Con. Oh, Oh, you are recently divorced and you wanted to talk about dating after divorce or sex after divorce. Which one was it? Both? A little bit of both. The podcast is about being positive and STDs. I know we're not necessarily going directly into that. But I was talking to my friend on Monday about when I was first dating after divorce And I realized that I spend all this time in my office talking to people about sex and having consent conversations and STD. Like I talk to people who are considering swinging about how they're going to have that conversation with the new couple to make sure that they're safe, how they're going to test themselves. What are they going to do for birth control? So I have these conversations clinically all day. But then for the first time in over 12 years, because I was married for 11 and there's still the, the year before where we had dated, I was out there in the dating world and I definitely wanted to have sex because I'm a very sexual person. You don't become a sex therapist if you're not. But I didn't know how to do it for myself. There was one person in particular where it was the first date, and yes, I had a one-night stand. <laughs> no judgments. A divorced marriage counselor? A divorced counselor, counselor who just had a... But I did, and I was too scared to talk to him about condoms. And I said, we were, we were kind of going into the experience, and there was this moment where he entered me, and I was like, holy shit he's not wearing a condom and I haven't talked to him about this and I don't know if he has an STD and am I safe? And like, you know, like all these thoughts just like shook through my brain. And I thought to myself, what are you, what are you doing? Why would you do this? But it, it hit, this isn't that easy. <laughs> this is actually pretty hard. I mean, it was weird because after this experience, then he was like, well, I did have a vasectomy so you won't get pregnant. And I was just like, it was a really weird 
after the fact sort of deal. And I was like, like, this is such an intimate thing we've done. And we didn't have basic conversations because I was too scared and he was too scared. And I think a lot of people are going through the same thing. <laughs> What's your thought on that? <laughs> it's hard to have the conversation at all when we're not trained to. We're yeah. more so programmed into this is just the next thing we do. Yeah. You look at any movie, TV show, you know, there's eye contact. No words are spoken. So yeah. why speak words when in real life when you're going to have sex? Even in porn, there's, hey, I got this pizza for you. Oh, does it come with extra sausage? Get in here. <laughs> and then it goes from there. So we're not taught Too how to have pizza the pizza guys get to have sex, I'm telling you. <laughs> that and then like the popcorn in the movie theater oh where you gosh. just put it over your jaw. <laughs> I, I still think that's a good move. <laughs> No, I'm joking. Don't do that. Uh, Women don't like it. <laughs> buttered cock. Oh, my goodness. That'd be... That might actually be painful, because that's pretty hot popcorn. <laughs> Put the hot butter on there. She's like, I want to make sure oh, she really likes this. <laughs> what if hot butter make a good lube, though? I don't... <laughs> but it was... I mean, the thing is, I mean, I dated a few different men and I found myself scared every single time so the way I actually found around it I didn't learn how to do it I'm gonna put it out there I didn't learn how to do the STD conversation directly I found an indirect way of doing it and what I basically started doing when I was dating men is I would say okay well I told them all up front because it was online dating right I'd say first date I only hug and the rules I set for myself were first date you can hug second date you can kiss third date you can fuck and the reason I did that was because I couldn't do the STD conversation. And it's weird. It's so weird because I can talk honestly and candidly about sex all day with people. But when it came to myself, it was just scary and I didn't know how to do it. And I kind of shut down. So I was like, I'm not putting myself in this situation anymore. What that particular rule set at least did for me is it helped me sometimes afterwards maybe in a text because like even doing it face to face I struggled with it you know but in a text I could be like hey you know this like I didn't have to look at them um but I just I found all these insecurities I had that I just I had no idea because I haven't been dating in years yeah. you know and there's a lot of people like I've heard stories where the first time they have sex after their divorce they get HIV or something and it's a pretty high STD rate so we I think me too, but like everybody, we need to, we need to have more models for how to have this conversation. And I would love to see it in TV or in a porn. That would be really cool. <laughs> if in porn videos, they required people to show what consent conversations looked like. That's a turnoff, according to mainstream media. I've talked to Dr. Evelyn Dacker on a recent episode of the podcast. I titled it Integrative Disclosure. She has a talk called STARS, and it's sexual health, turn-ons, avoids, relationship intent, and then the second S is for safety. And by oh. safety, we mean just like letting someone know where you are if you're going to someone's oh, house. Oh, okay. So huh. that... I like it outline of a conversation sets the frame for you for some people who are positive for mm -hmm. an sti to be able to have the conversation because it's really challenging because now you feel a sense of responsibility to keep your partner safe and let them know that this is a decision that they have to make and mm -hmm. you run the risk of rejection of course but ethically this is a conversation that needs to be had so yeah. what this does is structure it in a way where you don't necessarily have to open 
with STI status, you can more so find out, okay, are we a fit for one another? Mm -hmm. What turns me on may be one of your avoids. So at that point, and we don't need to have the conversation because I know we're not going to be intimate. And the same thing goes vice versa. Or if there's some things that maybe you are compatible on, so you find out, okay, we both just want to have a one-night stand. We both are turned on by this thing and we like this kind of thing we agree to the safety measures okay now that we have established this rapport here's my sti status i'm positive for genital herpes if we have sex this is what we need to do in order to reduce minimize the risk of you Mm -hmm. contracting it how do you feel about that and when's the last time you've been tested have you ever had an experience with stis have you dated a partner who's had herpes before and this is how we can structure the conversation but the word stis the word scds coming out of someone's mouth in a situation where we're presented with what sex looks like to us on a national big media level mm-hmm. it looks like porn it looks like we don't talk about that we just do it and we don't get stds which isn't true. Right. <laughs> I mean, I saw this documentary, actually, that was looking at teens in Europe versus teens in America for how we look at things like condoms and safety measures. In Europe, they asked the, kid, they asked the kids the same question in both countries. But in Europe, they said, what would you think if your partner had a condom in their wallet? What would you think of them? In Europe, they thought, oh, well, they're a responsible person. They're wanting to make sure that they're protecting you and they're making good decisions when they're having sex. That's what the teens in Europe said. But in America, the teens said things like, oh, she's a slut or they get around a lot. Or there's like there's a real shame here and stigma around sex first. But then anything to do to talk about sex, prevent it, protect it, be smart. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things. Yeah. And I think that that's all driven by just... I, I think a lot of stuff that's really fucked up in the world is driven by profit to some extent because Maybe. if we're too afraid or ashamed to talk about sex, we put ourselves in much more situations where we need to overcompensate, like we need to find information. So now we got to go to porn and pay for porn or we need to buy plan B or we need to purchase condoms. We need to be afraid of getting an STD. So there's just so much that really stems from just a need for more information around sex, period, so that we can extend that into sexual health, talking about pleasure, talking about safety, talking about consent, and so forth. Mm -hmm. I 100% agree. I think some of it comes from our puritanical nature as uh, as a country, too. It's funny, there was some article I saw about breastfeeding and this big fight of, you know, some boob coming out. And they're like, this one politician said, well, if a boob's out, then I can touch it. And it's like, are you kidding me? I don't remember which representative said it, but... See, the, that's the thing. Like, no the, one would touch a stranger's hair out in public, but you're just now... Now you're saying, oh, well, if her boob's out, it's on her. Exactly. But it stems to that same thing, is that we're not taught how to talk about this... We're not taught how to be mature around it. And as a result, what I see for my couples, this is is the saddest part for me, actually, is that there are a lot of couples that have unhappy sex lives because they're too scared to explore, try new things. The females sometimes are scared to tell the men, you know what, I need you to go down on me or touch my clitoris. That's actually where I get my orgasm. I'm still shocked how I have to keep saying that. And it's not the first time there was a wave talking about clitorises, you know? This happens again and again, and yet we consistently 
have sex that's more masculine driven, more masculine pleasure driven. And I consistently have women and men and, and mul so, you know, multi-genders. To be honest, though, the interesting thing is, is in queer sex, I think they're doing better sex. Oh, for sure. Because they're not necessarily in those traditional roles. They have to kind of pave the way themselves. And so I've honestly become more of an advocate for queer sex because it is more pleasure-based for both parties. It's outside of the penetrative box, so to speak. And not that penetration is a bad thing, but it's not the only thing necessary to have good sex. I think it diversifies our views on pleasure because there, I don't know, what's the spot? I forgot the name of it. I read an article by someone I follow on Instagram, Jamie J. LeClaire. And what they said in there was that there was this part underneath the penis that you can touch. I think I've always called it the tank, but it's got a technical name and I forgot what it is. But I was like, I was masturbating one day and I just started touching. I was like, oh, this is that thing that I read. Yeah. So that's not something that's in porn or sex. It's mm -hmm. usually someone's just throw fucking someone and then bend oh them over, God. have sex, orgasm on her face, and then it's over. Whereas with queer sex, there is much more of the, there's more sensuality, there's, there's more diversity and versatility. There's the different positions, there's an exchange of my pleasure being your pleasure or me pleasuring you, you pleasuring me, and, and times where, there are even times where someone's pleasuring the other person while pleasuring themselves. It's so much more broad. It's something we can certainly learn from. We can certainly learn more about ways to experience pleasure outside of what we've grown up believing that mm -hmm. men in the bedroom or in the car or outside, wherever you have sex. Well, I've got to say, queer sex is where it's at. <laughs> it just is. You know, uh, that's one thing, going back to dating when I was divorced, I learned is that I don't really like heterosexual sex in that way or whatever we would call it. I don't know, straight sex? Heteronormative. <laughs> Heteronormative. Ah, there's a good word. There's a good word, right? But yeah, queer sex basically means let's focus on pleasure in a mutual way. It doesn't have to go in any different direction. It can be just focused on one person. It can be focused on multiple people. It can end in orgasms. It doesn't have to end in orgasms. It's your choice. It's not like a pressure put on the situation. But I definitely found that the best new lovers that I met were people who were outside of the box. And I don't even mean in terms of how they identified. I mean in terms of how they performed in sex. And they were definitely not doing the typical American sex, which how I define it is you kiss a little, you touch a little bit, <laughs> somebody goes down on the other person, if they allow that. Sometimes oral sex isn't allowed. It and it's always one-sided. It's like it one is. person goes down and then, you, then sex starts. It's like, that's it. And then you have sex and you can never remove the penis from the vagina or that is breaking the American rule. <laughs> oh man, that's a really, really good way of putting that. Yeah, but that's American. That, to me, that's American sex or whatever, heteros heteronormative i do know that word i don't know why but queer sex means a lot of in between and a lot of communication and honestly a lot of consent talking and that's another <laughs> thing that we can learn from that space is being able to communicate i know that one thing that i've struggled with and still struggle with is asking for what i want and being able to communicate it in a way that not necessarily increases my odds of getting it, but mm -hmm. clearly articulating it in a way where the need can be met, mm -hmm. be it one way or communicating in a way, well, I'm not okay with this, but we can do 
this, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I understand. You don't want a partner to feel criticized, like they're not doing enough or, you know, there's just, there's so much fear around it for everyone. And all you gotta do is communicate. You can practice just by asking for someone to pass the salt, asking someone to pass something over to you, asking people to do things. I think that that is a useful tool for us to identify our needs and communicate them in a way that we can have them met because I find that people want to help us, people want to support us, people want to meet our needs, Mm -hmm. we want to give and offer positive experiences with one another but no one can do that if we don't know what you're asking for. So I have a weird story I want to share on this. How are you on time? I'm fine. Oh okay cool. Okay so my first lover, um, I think the Italians are great lovers. This is just a side note, but my first lover was Italian. I was 19, and I'd never done oral sex before in my life. And I really appreciated the way he introduced me to oral sex. What he essentially did was he said, okay, you've never done this before, and I want this to be a good experience for you. What can we do to make this a fun experience for you or a positive experience for you because I want you to enjoy it so you do it again (laughs) essentially and I it was just it was such a great way to put that out to me it wasn't like an expectation like you need to do this or like why aren't you no pressure just like what do we need to do to make this nice for you that was so salesy I, it it's was like, what do we need to do? It was know, very savvy. Happy I, about signing this contract. No, well, no, but because like I had never done it, he was he was sensing it was I was nervous around it, and it's funny. So he was like, well, he gave me like different things that people had done, but again, it was always like, well, so some people kind of do it like this, some people lick it this way, some people go like he really went into the details. He said. You know, sometimes for your first time, maybe if there's like something on it, like a flavor or a, you know, because there's different like massage oils, there's different even candies or powders you can use. He's like, you know, would that make it a nicer experience? But he really wanted it to be something that I enjoyed. And And, remembered. And I remember, like, I remember, I remember it and thinking to myself, because it was presented to to me in that way, I never got that thing that some girls struggle with where they... They just hate it. They're disgusted by it. They feel, you know, you mentioned the head fucking thing. I think that is a traumatizing experience for a lot of women. But porn is showing that as something pleasurable to us. And most women don't like that. It feels very demeaning. And so I didn't have that happen. And I was able to put boundaries around it. Like, I don't want you to put your hand on my head. I just, I need to be in control of this. And um, there was fun dip involved because it made it nice and more flavorful and i you know it was it didn't well he put it on himself so he got to decide exactly where that went but no it was it was a good experience and i just feel like when people are bringing up something new sexually they want to do that's how they need to approach it with this sort of here's something i'm kind of excited or curious about no pressure but what are your thoughts about it if we were to do it what would make it nice would you would you like it better if we did it this way or this way? Are you okay with you being the person or would you want it to be me? Because I was thinking of like tying yourselves up, for example. Um, maybe one person doesn't want to be tied up, but the other person does. So even being able to say, well, what if I get to be tied up and, and you kind of explore that with me? You know, like 
just a real openness around it, a willingness to talk about it outside of the sexual experience first so that there's an understanding. We weren't, we weren't in bed when we had that conversation. We were sitting on a couch and he was just talking to me. And I think all of those things help people to try new things. And they started me on a great path with sex. I don't have that trauma of somebody pushed their, my face down on them. No, like I felt in control. And when people feel empowered like that, sex becomes a good thing for them, a very positive experience that they want to repeat again and again and try new things and explore new things. But you, that takes two people willing to be curious, thoughtful, communicate, but also make sure that Whatever is happening, we're both enjoying this. So, yeah. <laughs> That's a hell of a way to end this podcast. Unless you got more that you want to touch on. I, we covered way more than we I We covered a billion to. things. I and could I'm, talk for hours. So I'm so <laughs> excited about it. And I tell people whenever they give me a chance to talk, like, I just, you got to turn it off. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, how can people find you? Oh, my website is www.therapistinsaintlouis.com. Um, from there you can find my YouTube channel, my podcasts. I have articles everywhere too. If you just look up Angela Skirtu, I have a big web presence. So you'll, you'll find me. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. So we have dating advice from a marriage counselor, therapist, which one would yeah. you rather be? Marriage therapist is the this is technical gonna, term. This so. is probably going to be the title of the podcast. Okay. Sounds good. I rocks with it. This concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. I can be found on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, and Reddit. I am not active at all on Tumblr, and I feel so bad about it. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> you can find me on any of those at H on my chest. And if you want to contact me directly, I'm always looking for guests for the podcast. I'm always still interviewing people who are living with STIs. You can email me at Courtney at SPFPP.org. You can check out other episodes of the website on your favorite podcast player, Something Positive for Positive People, or you can visit SPFPP.org and you can find the podcast there. Till next time, stay sex positive.